as we were having that um, very rich discussion uh, at the end of the afternoon. Um, and uh, one of the final issues, as everyone will uh, recollect, was the, the issue of um, how do we decide what to do? How, how do we uh, guide ourselves to, to work in, in the world? This is one of the perennial questions. You know, what should I do? <laughs> What's the right thing to do? Uh, as I mentioned, um, the uh, my own uh, pet thesis is that uh, there is no one right thing to do. Uh, or at least there is one right thing to do, but it changes uh, you know, every millisecond. <laughs> because uh, one moment the right thing is... Uh, is uh, humor and uh, and uh, to be uh, jovial, and then two seconds later, that's really the wrong thing. <laughs> and then, uh, another two seconds, and it's the right thing again. <laughs> so I feel this is a very uh, important area of... of uh, Dhamma, dhamma practice uh, to to look at to to consider to uh, understand. How do we decide what is the right thing to do? How to relate to others uh, in small actions, in in large actions, in, in the grand events and major decisions, or just in the way that we uh, we relate to our breakfast in the morning, you know, the way that we walk down a, a path. Yeah, how do we decide what to do? Yeah, how do we decide how uh, uh, is the right way to be? What's the best way to to operate? Uh, I was reminded as we were talking uh, uh, this afternoon. I, I didn't uh, bring it up then because uh, the conversation flowed in in a different direction. But um, I was reminded of a, a friend of ours uh, in America, uh, a man called Barry Kapke. Kandanya, who was a, a very good friend of the Sangha, one of the Abhayagiri Monastery lay ministers, one of the um, people who founded the, one of the very earliest uh, Buddhist websites, DharmaNet International, way back in the early 90s. <laughs> and uh, his, uh, his main profession was um, doing uh, ma- uh, massage and uh, body work of various different kinds. He was trained in, in a, a variety of different disciplines. And he developed his own particular kind of, of body work, which he called insight bodhi work, B-O-D-H-I, to, which uh, appealed to the punster in me, so the, uh, the word player. Um, insight bodhi work. And uh, there were th- three principles, three axioms that he used in the way that he he uh, uh, worked himself and the way that he taught others. And that this was uh, the three main themes. And I thought it would be uh, helpful to, to bring these up this evening. So the three axioms are, don't push, just use the weight of your own body. Don't diagnose, just be aware. Don't try to help, but don't turn away. Don't push, just use the weight of your own body. 
Don't diagnose, just be aware. Don't try to help, but don't turn away. Uh, when he uh, he uh, died a few years ago of um, uh, bowel cancer, there was a, a um, I knew he, he'd spoken about these principles before in, in, in conversations that we'd had. Um, but uh, when we had a funeral ceremony for him at Abayagiri Monastery, there was a letter from a former student of his uh, who was living in Taiwan, and she couldn't come for the funeral because. Uh, uh, of her commitments uh, over there, but uh, she wrote this this very moving letter, and um, in it she was uh, talking about what she'd learned from Kandanya, uh, uh, how these these principles of his had made uh, meant such a lot to her in her own uh, uh, her training in in uh, therapy and um, and also in her own life, uh, and she told this uh, uh, a, a series of, of stories where. She said um, how she was on her her very first ten day meditation retreat, and she was completely miserable. And uh, she came into the the kitchen dining room at this retreat center at breakfast time. Yeah, took her breakfast and went to the most sort of remote corner of the dining room, sat down and just wept into her cornflakes, the Californian equivalent. Wept into her organic muesli. Just utterly miserable, dejected, having a horrible time. And then she said that uh, Kandanya came uh, shortly afterwards. He just came and sat next to her. And she said, he didn't look at me. He didn't say anything. He didn't kind of nudge me or give me a wink or anything. He just sat down next to me and quietly ate his breakfast. And that was so helpful. That was so comforting. And somehow, in a wordless way, it uh, it helped enormously. And then she said, some years later, uh, her younger sister was about to give birth to her first child. And uh, this woman, Rachel, as a big sister, had gone to special um, birthing classes, like uh, <laughs> you're describing. So trained herself up with you know, how to help people having home births and had done all these... these um, learned all these methods and these practices and was there to help her kid sister having her first baby. Um, but as the, the, the baby started coming, um, the, uh, uh, the uh, experience was so intense, she couldn't, the, the younger sister couldn't stand to have anyone near her, let alone anyone touch her, you know, doing any kind of special massage or anything. And, and this uh, friend uh, said, you know, she just screamed and screamed and screamed in the pain of the birth and so then uh, first of all she was she was a uh, flustered and unsettled and didn't know what to do and then she remembered Kandanya coming to to sit down beside her and so she just went into the room where her sister was in labor and without saying anything without, uh, without trying, making any kind of gesture she just sat down on the floor next to the bed and uh, and just sat there didn't do anything just just was there and then after the, the baby was born and the uh, you know, little son had arrived, then her younger sister said, that was so helpful. <laughs> you can't believe how much that meant, just having you there. And uh, you, know, you didn't need to say anything, but somehow with you there, I was able to relax and, and be uh, at, at, uh, more at ease with what was happening. And then 
I could give birth. And then she said, uh, and now when I see my younger sister with her little two-year-old, you know, cranky and howling, and <laughs> she just will have him on her lap, and uh, he's, you know, moaning and wailing and complaining, and she's, she's just there. She's not trying to make him all right. And she says, and in that I see how Kandanya's work is, uh, his his way is, is uh, carrying on through the through the generations. So I, I feel these are, are very helpful principles to consider when we're pulled into this this feeling. Of what should I do? <laughs> you know, what's the right thing to do? And if we take these these simple phrases uh, and and look at them, feel them out a bit, they don't push. Just use the weight of your own body. Don't diagnose, just be aware. Don't try to help, but don't turn away. So what they're all pointing to, they all have this, sim- this, this single flavor of getting me out of the picture. <laughs> right? That's a, a lot of it. So it's not about um, a, a method. It's not about... Um, a collection of sort of how to calculate the right thing to do. It's all to do with getting me out of the way. And in a sense, trusting our intrinsic involvement in the universe. So don't try to help. When you let go of trying to help, it doesn't mean that you go passive or you freeze. It means you let go of the trying and then the helping happens. Uh, don't diagnose, just be aware. doesn't mean to say that you're switching off and you're, you're abandoning your intelligence and your acquaintance with how things work. That's all still there, but you're just sw- switching off the, the calculator, <laughs> just, uh, just getting the, um, you know, the busy controller and, and uh, fuss budget out of, the, uh, uh, out of the picture so that our natural intelligence, our intuitive wisdom, our intrinsic attunement to the situation can operate without confusion and without uh, clutteredness. Don't push, just use the weight of your own body. So you're using weight, there's presence, there's contact, but you're not trying to make something happen, You're you're not pushing. It's not me trying to get an effect, but more, uh, in a sense, attuning to the to the situation and just using the the weight of your own body in that in that respect so when we bro- we we look at those principles and, and broaden them uh, we see that what what they're pointing to is how to work in the world without a sense of self how to uh, function in the, the the way that we relate with other people the the, the tasks great and small whether it's just measuring out our muesli in the morning, whether it's you know, walking down a, a path, whether it's trying to decide what kind of advice to give to our, our uh, aging and ailing mother, you know, uh, whatever the, the, the scale it might be. It's to do with learning how to, to see that, that uh, self-centered element uh, that is so strong, such a strong habit in all of us, like our, our friend was saying yesterday, yeah, is it really possible for someone to actually let go of self-view? I mean, really? Really? Because it seems so strong, the conditioning, so convincing, so intense. But in a way, this is, this is, uh, 
if we see that's the task, even though it might seem like a 3,000-foot cliff, (laughs) and it might feel daunting, at least we know what the task is. At least we know that, yeah, that's... uh, this, this is where it's most helpful to put our attention. Uh, we can look at that, see that, know that, understand how that works, and then uh, uh, train the heart not to be dominated by that. Then it uh, helps uh, uh, a great deal uh, in order to, uh, to uh, say, inform our actions, inform our way of being in the world relating to our own lives, the lives of uh, of. Uh, our families, the people that we work with, and the whole world. Now, I also like to uh, one of my my favorite ways of talking about this is is to liken this to the dilemma of uh, our favorite anguished prince of Denmark, Hamlet. And uh, I will uh, presume uh, that most people here, uh, if not familiar with the whole of of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, at least are familiar with that famous soliloquy. That solo piece where he's um pun- he's trying to ponder what to do <laughs> and so uh he uh, the, the soliloquy begins to be or not to be that is the question so, yeah. to be or not to be that is the question you know, which extreme and then he follows that up with, uh, and the English is obviously a bit antiquated, so for those of us for whom English is not the first language, I apologize, but I'll give a little commentary as we go along. <laughs> to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So, to be a doormat in modern parlance. Is it is it better to just sort of lie, lie here and just take it, be passive, be a doormat, just let everything happen, do nothing, switch off. Uh, uh, nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, just to let it all hit you and go numb, do nothing, be passive. Or, the other alternative, to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. So, or is it, Better to take action, do something, get in there, wade in, and in this instance to take on his uncle and accuse him of murdering his father, the king. And so that uh, this was his dilemma, to be or not to be. <laughs> to be passive, you know, to, to just be a doormat and just let it all happen, or to take action and to oppose his uncle and get, get, uh, get busy and get uh, contentious. And that was his dilemma, you know. <laughs> to to be to not be to be to not be and so this uh, even though we might not think in those terms those of us whose minds don't move towards shakespearean quotations <laughs> you might think well this is all a bit remote but i think for every one of us here in the room we've we've all had those uh, those dilemmas should i do something should i just let it happen should i jump in and take action you know or should i just stand back and, and not interfere. What should I do? What's, what's the right thing? But uh, again, um, the, uh, in, in this dilemma, the, the, uh, one of the key elements that we might miss is that it's uh, Hamlet trying to decide what he should do. You know, <laughs> should I take action or should I be passive? Should I suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or should I take arms against the sea of troubles?
Yeah, what should I do? <laughs> so uh, w- the way I, I, uh, I like to, um, to speak about this and the way I try to work myself is to, to see that it's, uh, the options that we have are not just to contend against the way things are, to take arms against the sea of troubles, or to just capitulate to the way things are, just to, to try and to go passive, to switch off and just to try and be numb. Because both of those extremes, to my experience, lead to more suffering. They lead to more dislocation, more um, of a sense of, of alienation and, and incompleteness. They, they don't resolve things. They, they don't lead <coughs> to wholeness. They don't lead to completion. They don't lead to, to peace and, and uh, finality. So that uh, where we, we have... Um, uh, those two, they might seem like the only possibilities. What uh, the, the Buddha's teaching points to is the middle way. So rather than the middle way being sort of halfway around the swing where it's <laughs> contending half the time and being passive the other half the time, or being half-heartedly contentious, you know, just sort of... <laughs> that uh, rather, the way I like to think of the middle way, rather than um, being halfway between the extremes of, of doing and, and not doing, the middle way is more, if people are looking at this little handy indicator, the middle way is the point where, they, where the, the pendulum pivots from. Mm-hmm. This <laughs> so that is more, the middle isn't just the halfway along between the two extremes. The middle is where the whole thing pivots from. So what that means is, at least uh, one way of looking at it, is rather than... Uh, contending against the way things are, or caving in, capitulating to the way things are. What the middle way points to is working with the way things are. So we are intrinsically related to the, the world. We are, we are the world. We are part of the world. Our, our life, our body, our minds. We can't get separate from the world. Even if you want to be passive and not be involved, you're involved. <laughs> we, we can't not be involved. We share the same air. We live on the same planet. We eat the same food. We are, uh, we are part of the same society, the same family. You know, we, we are involved. We are participating. So we are part of that natural reality. It's like when, when people say, I really love to be out in nature. <laughs> Where <do you> laughs> How can you get away from nature? I mean, I know what they mean is I like to be away from the city and around things that are not constructed by humans. <laughs> But also when you think, say, when we use those kind of phrases, so I really like to be out in nature. Yeah. How can we get away from, from the natural order? We are part of that. That's, that's what we are. So that in this respect, uh, rather than those, just those two extremes, the middle way uh, I, would, uh, I see is... Uh, rather than contending against the way things are or, or, or giving in to the way things are, it's learning how to work with the way things are and to uh, guide our intrinsic uh, participation, uh, our relatedness to the situation, that we are a part of it, to be, to be guiding that, uh, to be steering that, but not from a place of, of self-view, not from a place of I and me and mine. 
Uh, the, uh, when the, the Buddha talks about right effort in the Eightfold Path, the, the, there's the element of right effort, samavayamo. And this is about you know, what to do or how to, how to, uh, to act, how to put forth effort in a, a good way. And then he, he divides it up into four pieces. Uh, so these are Sangvara, which means, which is actually is the name of Prabhakara's sister, <laughs> which means uh, restraint. To, so restraining the unwholesome from arising, Sangvara. The second one is Pahana, if the unwholesome has arisen, to let it go. Bhavana means the development or cultivation, so the cultivation of the wholesome. And the fourth one is Anurakana, which means to protect or to cherish or to, to nurture. So the, the right effort, the way that the, the Buddha encourages us to act, is to restrain the unwholesome from arising, or if it has arisen, to let it go. To consciously cultivate the wholesome, and if it has arisen, to maintain it and hold it in being. So these are the, the efforts that uh, we, can, uh, we can make, or we, we need to make, to guide our lives in a skillful way. But you'll notice that none of those involve a sense of self, that, that there can be that recognizing the unwholesome uh, doesn't mean to say my mind is unwholesome or that is ugly, that's evil. Uh, it's just, no, that's an unwholesome thing. That's unskillful, that's unbeautiful. Recognizing that, knowing that, letting it go. The wholesome, uh, cultivating loving kindness or compassion rather than I'm going to be kind or I'm going to do something good or I'm going to be compassionate. All the I am's are clustering in around that, but they don't have to be that. Rather, we, the, the wholesome, the noble, the beautiful, can be cultivated, but without a sense of self, without a sense of me doing, me uh, me trying to a, a achieve or accomplish or, or get some particular thing. So uh, this, uh, when, if we look at Kandanya's three principles, what they're really describing is how to practice right effort, how to, to, to work in the world, how to engage with others and to to do what we can to understand our own life and to, to work with the, the lives of others, um, coming from that place of samavayamo, of, of uh, right effort, of effort which is attuned. Because the sama, when people, sometimes people uh, get very uncomfortable um, with the right of right view, right, uh, right thought, yeah, right, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and they feel that's a bit abusive or politically incorrect because you know, we don't want to set up a, a, a dichotomy between right and wrong. But the sama of, of, uh, of the Eightfold Path, that sama, it's a, a, a musical term. Sama means attuned, so that when, a, when the strings of a, of a lute, of a vina, are in harmony with each other, they are sama. That's the, the, the origins of the, of the word. So it's more like attuned view, attuned intention, attuned uh, speech, action, attuned effort, and so forth. So that it's uh, attuned to reality. Uh, to, to spell it out in this way is, is one thing, but of course to do it is another. <laughs> to be able to um, live by that quality of 
attunement, that, that's, that's a, a challenge, isn't it? Um, but it's, uh, in, in essence, to understand that that's what uh, is, uh, say, what's being aimed for, that's uh, the, um, uh, the, the goal, is a helpful, it gives us a direction, it gives us a, a clear and definitive direction, a, a, an aim, and also helps us to see that, ah, that's why I kept being frustrated, or that's why it wasn't working, because I was really trying hard to get it right, I was trying so hard to get it right. That's why it was always getting it was it was always going wrong because it was me trying really really hard, me trying to do good things, me trying to be helpful, me trying to be unselfish. And that the and even though we can act with great energy and sincerity, the more there's a me trying, a me doing, a me uh, getting, a me trying to get rid of my laziness, my unselfishness, me trying to get rid of my doubts. <laughs> that that we we get so focused on the the thing that that is trying to be done. That we miss the the me, the meanness, the inus, the minus that is sort of <laughs> that sort of uh, has hijacked the the uh, the vehicle, has sort of taken over, and is is guiding uh, our uh, our lives, our world. So this is a lot to do with, in a sense, turning the camera around. <laughs> so, who are you? <laughs> yeah, who who put you in charge? <laughs> what are you doing here? And uh, in a sense, getting familiar with that feeling of I and me and mine, to to see that, to know that, to understand that, and then once we're able to see that, that's that's the the kind of uh, disharmonious element. That's the 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 element that is always giving rise to discord and is making the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the instrument out of uh, out of tune out of harmony with with everything then we, we in a way we know what to look for so some in this respect many of the, the buddha's teachings about uh, anatta and these uh, reflections that we've had in the morning about you know the body is not self feelings are not self perceptions are not self formations mental formations are not self and so on these are reflections and so many of you i know are very familiar with the Buddha's teachings around this area. Some of you are very new to Buddhism, very new to meditation. But this is an area that was uh, focused on, made a a central feature of the Buddha's teaching early on. uh, Very very soon after the Enlightenment, he was talking about this and explaining this. And his explanation of this principle was what brought about the full enlightenment of the first group of his students uh, shortly after his Enlightenment. So when we use phrases like the body is not self or feelings are not self or we see in a book, you know, the, the Buddha said that there is no self or, then we might think, well, does that mean I don't exist? Well, it certainly feels kind of real <laughs> and yeah, I don't know what else is going on but I certainly feel like the most real thing that there is in this world. You know, whatever I am, I'm, I'm definitely a something, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Um, and uh, oftentimes we might hear these teachings on anatta, or selflessness, not self, or there being no self. And it can be very confusing. So I'm supposed to walk around pretending I don't exist, or saying I'm nobody? Or, you know, or when uh, you know, I come through immigration, they <laughs> I give them a blank sheet of paper instead of a passport? That's going to get me a long time on the bench. <laughs> In the examination room, yeah. 
so it's helpful to uh, to understand how that that works and so just to to address that very briefly um when the 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 buddha uses these principles of uh, uh, anicca dukkha anatta meaning uh, uncertainty uh, anicca means not sure or not permanent uh not stable like nichala means stable the one who is stable the one who is permanent anicca means impermanent unstable or uncertain anicca anicca and then uh, Dukkha means unsatisfactory. We've been using this word quite a lot in, quite a lot in a very um, matter-of-fact way. Dukkha means uh, that which is unsatisfying, that which is uh, stressful, that which is hard to bear. And the word dukkha itself uh, is uh, interesting. It comes from the the um, two parts. The the word the, the the syllable du means wrong or imbalanced or um, out of out of order, uh, uh, afflicted, and then the uh, the second part, the the uka, uh, comes from the the word akka, and the akka is the the hole in the center of the wheel that the axle goes through. So dukkha is literally du akka, which, like mean, which means like the a wheel that's out of kilter, so the you know, a wheel that's wobbling, and we've all had that experience in the supermarket. You know, the, the trolley that's kind of trying to drive into the, the rack of fruit juices and or, uh, assaulting our neighbor in the aisle or, or riding, you know, trying to ride a bicycle and the wheels you know, wobbling here and there. This is dukkha. We all know that experience. Uh, so dukkha is that uh, which is uh, unsatisfactory. And anatta, atta means self, like the Sanskrit atma, atman means self, and anatta means not self. Uh, so these are, are uh, what are known as the three characteristics of existence. So the Buddha pointed out that regardless of whether it's an aspect of the physical world or the mental world, you know, any aspect uh, of the, the conditioned world, the created, the formed world, uh, his suggestion was that you know, every single aspect of the conditioned world is anicca, dukkha, anatta. Things are changing. Things are in a, all things, mental and physical, are in a constant state of change. And physicists and biologists and, and psychologists, everyone will agree with this on the scientific front, uh, that uh, everything is changing. If, it, if it's a thing, it's in a state of change. That's its nature. And then the second part, say, well, you know, if you look, then that if things are changing, then they, they uh, can't be permanently satisfactory because if something is delightful and delicious and beautiful, then... Uh, it can only stay that way for a certain amount of time. You can only hold it and enjoy its its beauty and its deliciousness as long as it stays in that form, and then it changes. And its changingness means that it's unsatisfactory. It can't make us permanently pleased and happy and fulfilled. It's impossible for anything to do that. And then anatta, um, the things are not self, that uh, this this body is in a constant state of change our, ever since we've come into this room or come on this retreat. Our bodies have been constantly changing, consuming all the delicious food that uh, Diana and Rory and the other cooking team have been conjuring up on a daily basis. So we have how many Amravati retreat center meals have we got here in the room? Mm-hmm. Our bodies are made up of this this fabric. 
I like to, to think um, I've been a, a monk for 33 years now. So they say that your body is, uh, changes all the cells uh, every seven years. So seven's into 33, 28 and a half. So, sorry, four and a half. Uh, um, so that means uh, my body has been replaced four and a half times over. And this, so this is a completely donated body. <laughs> this body has come out of my arms bowl. Yeah, apart from the air that I breathed in. You know. But yeah, this is a donated body. This has come out of an arms bowl. Or a couple of different arms bowls. <laughs> so the body is not self, means it's in a constant state of change. It can't, it's not stable. It does, it's, it's not something that's permanently me or mine. And then on the mental level, we might think, yeah, but my thoughts are mine. My thoughts, my memories are me, they're mine. But when we examine the thoughts and feelings, moods, mental impressions with, uh, with the eye of insight, with the eye of wisdom, we see well, those two are changing. And when, when, the, when, the, when we look for that which is the owner, that which is the, the meanness that's doing the owning, uh, the harder we look, the, the more we can't find it. <laughs> Certainly, yeah, memories arise, feelings arise, cognition arises. There's a, 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 a knowing. But when we try to find the, the essential, distinct, separate me, you know, then the Buddha pointed out, if the more you look, the more you, you realize you, you know, it can't be found. So these are not, uh, even though I, I talk about them being defined in this way, the, the Buddha wasn't putting them out as these are, Sort of spiritual diktats that you, you're supposed to believe, but more, these are a set of tools to examine our experience with. So when we see, uh, you know, we we use these tools, then we might think, well, that's permanent. That's a you know, that's a, a solid, real thing. Then we use that the tool of anicca to pick, to examine it like a a lens. Say, so, what well, is that really permanent? Is that really solid? Is that really uh, something that is um, absolute? Say, oh yeah, well the, the one thing that's permanent is the law of change, right? Ha ha! Gotcha. But your concept of the law of change is changing. <laughs> yeah. And it's in the English language. So English language is also yeah, conceptual forms. So the, the, when the, the, we're not trying to put these out as sort of philosophical um, diktats, but more ways of looking at our experience. So it's not saying you're trying to believe that you know, your thoughts are not self, or your, your moods don't have an owner, but uh, as, a, as a way to pick them up and look, well, does this mood have an owner? Is this really uh, who and what I am? If this belongs, what is it that's doing the owning? What is that? Is that? So it's a, these are tools to help us examine our experience and to let go of the habitual identification of I am the body, I am the personality, I am these memories, I am these ideas. Uh, one of the, um, the classic teachings uh, on uh, birth and death, the, the classic Frameworks of teachings on birth and death is uh, again with the um, at the risk of getting too technical <laughs> for the people who are not so familiar with Buddhist teachings. There's a a a, 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 a pattern that, uh, of experience that the Buddha described called dependent origination. 
Paticca Samuppada. And um, this, uh, this is describing how experience arises and how um, through the flow of experience we come to experience dissatisfaction and alienation and uh, discontent. Yeah, how and uh, and uh, that uh, how that appears in the world. And uh, in the 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 later commentarial systems and in some of the sutta teachings, then this talks this is taken to be talking about the flow of lifetimes, one li- one lifetime leading to another to another. And so that uh, particularly in the Visuddhimagga, the sort of standard compendium of Theravada teachings, this. Uh, is talking about um, how birth and death operates. Um, so are covering the span of several lifetimes. But uh, if, you, if you look at the suttas themselves, the original discourses of the Buddha, then you find that there's not that many references, that there's a minority of references to the dependent origination covering the spans of, of several lifetimes or a couple of lifetimes. But more, it, it speaks about our momentary experience, the experience of how uh, suffering arises and how it comes to an end, how dukkha arises, how it comes to an end here in the present moment. And this was a, uh, because the, the Visuddhimagga, the, sort of the three lifetimes or the, the many lifetimes approach was taken to be very much a sort of the, you know, the reality um, and the, the whole picture, then... Uh, uh, in uh, in Thailand, in in the fifties and sixties, uh, a, uh, a particular Buddhist philosopher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, started to examine that closely and started going through the suttas and and and, and looking carefully at this and realizing, well, actually, you know, the 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 majority of teachings in the suttas don't talk about it over many lifetimes. They talk about it as how uh, we experience dukkha and the liberation from dukkha here and now in this moment. And Ajahn Buddhadasa was um, someone who was very much admired uh, uh, by Ajahn Chah, our teacher, and um, so and very much influenced by him. So Ajahn Chah used to, to approach it in the same way. He would say that the teachings about dependent origination, how through the, uh, the minds uh, drifting into uh, uh, unmindfulness, when we lose our mindfulness, how... Uh, Rapidly, that leads to our sense of, of frustration or irritation or alienation, dukkha of various kinds. He said, "When you, if you want to understand the dependent origination, you know, you know, there's this whole series of interconnected um, aspects of it, the twelve links, you know, twelve different uh, aspects of it, all connected to each other." He said, "You know, you." Uh, you might be able to spell it out in the book and describe what each one is, but actually it's more like falling out of the top of a tree. And says, uh, if you're really sharp, you can count the branches on the way down, you know, all the different links, you know, you can, you can tabulate them. But it all happens so fast, really all you know is that you're falling and then thunk, ow, that hurt. <laughs> you know, thud, you hit the ground. It happens so fast from the mind losing its attention, uh, losing its mindfulness, to the point where, ow, yeah, uh, I'm suffering. So within that, uh, and again, you could spend a whole week-long workshop or a year-long workshop on dependent origination, so I'll try to, to keep it brief. But the, the key element within this, uh, that description, is it talks about how 
when uh, with the body and the mind we have the the six senses eye ear nose tongue body and the the thinking mind when we have the the six senses then that gives rise to to perception and feeling the feeling of attraction feeling of aversion you know, neutral feeling so when uh, the the eye say perceives an object that is is uh, appealing then th- there's a a pleasant sensation a pleasant feeling that comes from that now, if we're mindful, then the, uh, we see, oh, this is a pleasant feeling, this is uh, an object that is, uh, uh, is beautiful. Uh, and then we, uh, if, if there's mindfulness, then it stops right there. The mind doesn't get caught up in that. If there's not uh, any mindfulness or a lack of mindfulness, then that liking, uh, that, oh, that's beautiful, then the mind um, finds that, that feeling the 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 uh, the quality of of beauty or attractiveness or pleasantness that quickly conditions desire tanha or craving and craving then conditions uh, clinging that the that that the uh, the eye sees something oh that's interesting oh yeah I want it and then clinging is I'm going to get it and then clinging leads to becoming like I'm on my way. <laughs> Not, I'm, I'm not, it's not that I'm going to get it, I'm, I'm getting it. <laughs> and so that, uh, that term becoming, or bhava in Pali, this is, you can imagine it like a rising wave, like the, the mind is sort of caught on a, jumps onto a wave, and then the wave sort of gathers momentum, or climbing onto a train. Like, uh, feeling is like standing on the station, and there's the train, and you think, oh, nice train. <laughs> Desire is getting on the train, and the, you know, the train starts off, and then the train with clinging, the train gathers momentum. Becoming is the level where the um, yeah, it, the train is really picking up speed, <laughs> and there's a sense of acceleration and yeah, I'm going to get what I want. And then becoming leads to birth, jati. So jati is the point of no return. So that that means that that uh, you can't get off the train now. <laughs> the train is is off and running, and, and there's no getting off the train. You have to wait till you get to the next stop. And so that um, then birth uh, in, in this uh, cycle is followed by uh, aging, sickness, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, sokaparideva, dukkha, domanasa, upayasa, in brief. <laughs> so one of our friends used to refer to as, these are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> So that, that uh, what this is pointing to then is how when we follow a desire and we say, yeah, that's great, isn't that wonderful, I need one of those. And then we, we, we follow after it, we, we make the moves to, and think, oh, this is great, oh, the Samsung Galaxy S3. <laughs> this is the, the object of desire in monastic circles in Thailand at the moment, the, the S3. And even noble monks are looking at ways to lose or damage their S2s <laughs> so they can have an excuse to get an S3. So. Of course, I'm totally beyond that kind of thing myself. <laughs> I did notice that when I was in Thailand. This is the, the object du désir of the day. In our day, it was having the, the most uh, beautiful bowl stand. See, Pavakra was the maker of the world's most ex- unique and exquisite bowl stand, and I was his... I was a student, but my bolster was actually more beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
That's because I taught you. That's because you taught me. So desire objects can take all sorts of different forms. And uh, so then you think, I've got the most beautiful bowl stand in the world. And when one of the senior monks from Wat Bapong, our main monastery, saw this bowl stand, because in those days, bowl, the, the alms bowl stand made with, with rattan, yeah, Joseph invented that method. He was the first one to do it. Now they're all over Thailand. He invented this method. I was his first student to do this. And I was so proud of this bowl stand. It, it took me three months to make. And one of the, one of the senior monks of Wabapong asked me for it, <laughs> which is a pretty outrageous thing to do. It was Ajahn Tui. Ajahn Tui from uh, Ayutthaya asked me for it, and I said no. <laughs> <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't let go. Like, mm. And I was like a, a monk of three weeks, you know. <laughs> and he was a monk of like 23 vasa. And I just said, no, I can't give it to you, Ajahn. <laughs> but then, what happened was that uh, when I came back to England and I uh, was living in, I uh, went down to Devon to spend the rains retreat, I think my second, third rains as a monk. The third day of the rains retreat, the caravan went up in flames. And of the world's most beautiful bowl stand, there was not even dust. <laughs> not, uh, no ash, no dust, nothing. Pow, mot. Anicca. So when we have uh, desire objects, then we are reborn. I was reborn into that bowl stand. There was, there was definite becoming and birth. And so then um, there was you know, clinging and attachment when suddenly there's the, this Ajahn is asking you if you can have it. And you say, no. <laughs> then, you, then you're living with that feeling of, did I just do that? <laughs> I can't believe that was so, that was so, so uh, ungracious and rude. Yeah. So that's the. Hmm? He did this. Role. He did later on, yeah. <laughs> but not because he didn't get the bowl stand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's the Soka Parideva Dukkha Dominasu Payasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Or when you've, you've, um, you decide you've really got to have that new house and that you know, it's really worth it and you need to make the move. And then and you think, yeah, I've got this wonderful new place. This is great. This is fantastic. Then you find, oh dear, neighbors. I didn't bank on who I was going to get from my neighbors. Oh, uh, yeah, look at this mortgage. Ay, 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 ay. I got the house. <laughs> but then you get everything else that goes with it. And we can all insert within our own little uh, life stories, small and large uh, experiences where we got what we wanted. And then shortly after we realize, oh dear, yeah, I got what I wanted. <laughs> Because we don't realize what comes with it. And so the Soka Parideva Dukkha Domanasu Bayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, it's not a sour look on life. It's not the Buddha being negative, but saying, look, you know, when, when you're born into something, you get the whole package. When a, when a baby is born, we say, oh, how wonderful, how beautiful. You know, we don't see the whole you know, life of, of, uh, of responsibilities and, and difficulties and, and uh, the highs and lows are going to come with that relationship. We, you know, we, uh, we, we don't see the whole thing. 
it's easier to, it's easier to spot with simple objects like something that you buy in a shop or a, you know a car that you get uh, or a bowl stand <laughs> but it's the same thing in every every dimension of our life so that when we we're talking about rebirth birth and death and uh, uh this this kind of um feelings of regret or feelings of uh, remorse or a sense of, oh dear, I hoped so much you know, when I got this new job it was going to be so great, I was going to come on this retreat, it was going to change my life. <sighs> yeah. Then uh, we, uh, that uh, is what I would call ego death. There are many, many different kinds of, of this where something that we were invested in, uh, that we had... Uh, our, our heart set upon that we are uh, our sense of I and me and mine is identified with that with that job, with that that role in society, with that relationship, with that position in a monastery. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, when uh, we don't get what we want or what has been we thought was ours is uh, is taken away or uh, life <coughs> erodes it or dissolves it. Then uh, there's that bitter feeling. That, that bitter quality, the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair—the the worst has happened. Yeah, I got up on stage and I and I died. Yeah. I to die on stage is the, to you know the f- fear of public speaking in that Harvard uh, survey. So we're terrified of that. We 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 hate that. All these uh, speaking of these different qualities of regret, as people were very. Um, openly and poignantly speaking about in the terms of the, the exercise that we did this morning. But I would categorize all of those under the, the, the realm of, of ego death, that's something that we are identified with, something that is truly ours, is cherished by, by me. It, it's gone, it's dissolved, it's lost. And so there's that, that bitterness, that painfulness. So to understand birth and death and to, to say, bring ourselves into accord with how that works, uh, uh, it's it's not just physical death that we're talking about, and some, uh, but this these kinds of ego death, dealing with being sacked from that job, uh, having your partner walk out on you, uh, having that um, uh, looking forward or, or hoping beyond hope that you're going to get accepted for some uh, some you know some college. You know, I can still remember not getting into Oxford University. I think. And people said, "Oh, you know, uh, you know what university did you, did you go to? Or did you did you go to Oxford?" I said, "Well, I took the entrance exams. I got an interview, <laughs> but something will still feel uh-huh, that uh, I didn't get accepted to Oxford University, <laughs> as if that was the end of the world." I mean, ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of the world's population didn't go to Oxford University. <laughs> it's not a big deal, and I enjoyed my time at London University and had a wonderful three years. And I'm sure if I had gone to Oxford, I, mean, I would have been way out of my depth <laughs> and drunk far too much. <laughs> but still, that I, can, I can bring that, that memory back of, uh, of taking the exams and going for the interview and then getting this very blunt, extremely brief slip through the post. You, know, you have not been accepted for a, posi- a place at the, this college. You know, do not uh, ask for any follow-up. <laughs> it was really quite brutal. It was like one little. It wasn't even a whole sheet of paper. It was just like a little slip of paper in an envelope. You know, no, you didn't get in. No, don't ask us to check it again. We are sure about it. 
goodbye. <laughs> so, you know, that was, I don't know, 40 years ago, nearly. But yet, that's, there's a sadness that can be a shadow in the heart. All those different losses and failures. So when we, we look at those and we, we begin to, to see, uh, oh, because of that desire and buying into that desire, there was, you know, there was the desire, the desire led to clinging, the clinging led to becoming, then the becoming led to birth, and then, then that led to, uh, to the, the, the death experience, that, that sense of, of loss and diminution. Uh, becoming is very exciting. The whole consumer culture uh, runs on that feeling of <sighs> that, uh, that I'm about to get that which is really perfect and it's going to truly make me happy. Because at that point, when the mind is absorbed into bhava, then the, the universe is shrunk to that one object, of the desire object that we're going to get or the, ir- the annoying object that's, that we're going to get rid of. And that once we've got rid of those lousy neighbors, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> Once I've got over this illness, once I've got through this retreat, I'll be fine. <laughs> and that uh, that becoming is very convincing. And uh, when they've rigged people up with galvanic skin uh, uh, measuring devices to, to test heart rate and levels of excitement, etc., the moment of maximum pleasure, and they can even measure the, sort of the level of endorphins in the brain. That, so the maximum pleasure moment is when you know you're going to get the object of desire and it hasn't quite reached you yet. <laughs> so when, the, when they, you go, someone's in a shop, they rig, they rig people up and send them into shops and this kind of thing. So that it's when the, the, the person behind the counter is about to give you the thing that you want and you, you, you're guaranteed to get it but you haven't quite got it. That's the moment of maximum pleasure. And you're already starting to get disappointed once it's in your hands. <laughs> in case you hadn't noticed. But it's like that. Uh, that is what um, we are, in a way, it's, a, it's an enormously powerful drug. Becoming. Becoming. So that, that uh, this becomes, this is important. It becomes sort of a... a uh, key issue, because the um, the mind gets caught in all sorts of reasonable becomings. You know, becoming a good Buddhist, becoming a good meditator, becoming wiser. <laughs> uh, or the its uh, its partner, which is uh, getting rid of the vibhava tanha, the getting rid of unruly thoughts, getting rid of our. our our kind of unwholesome emotions and reactive patterns, you know, getting rid of our defilements and so on, getting rid of, uh, getting rid of our distracted uh, thinking, getting concentrated, developing insight, becoming enlightened. All these you know, reasonably good becomings, <laughs> becoming more compassionate, becoming a kind person, becoming a competent carer. And so all these seem to make, you know, as I'm saying these words, you might think, well, yeah, right, of course. Don't we want that? <laughs> but the, the, the Buddha pointed to these kinds of becoming, bhavatana vibhavatana, the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, these are uh, the direct causes of, of, uh, of suffering. These are the kinds of desire, the kinds of craving 
that uh, along with sense desire, like desiring the new Samsung Galaxy S3 or the new bowl stand or <laughs> a new career, whatever it might be, that uh, so sense desire and then the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, these are all feeding into that uh, desire process. And if we don't understand it, even if it's reasonable becomings or, or worthwhile becomings, they still lead to disappointment, like trying to be a good carer, trying to look after our parents, trying to take care of our beloved, trying to become the perfect partner, the, per the perfect abbot. <laughs> it's dukkha. <laughs> yeah. And that, uh, so it takes a lot of mindfulness to see that, that habit. That, uh, and to, to see that, oh yeah, it's me trying to be the perfect monk, or me trying to, to get this relationship right, or me trying to, to succeed in this task. And when we see that I and me and mine habit you know, working its way in there, and once that's, that's known and recognized, then we can let that go. Then we can... We can uh, function from the place of, of uh, right effort so that there's still doing, there's engagement, there's still making the moves to, to do abiting <laughs> in a wholesome way or, or, or training the mind to focus, uh, learning to let go of the unwholesome. But it's not coming from a place of I should, I've got to, I ought to, I mustn't. The, all those eyes, you know, I, 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 I. Uh, when we're able to, to live from that place of, um, uh, of unentanglement, the, 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 the mind not entangled in those habits of eye-making and mind-making, then everything becomes a lot more simple and fluid and, and easy. We're, we're, we're living in a, a responsive way so that we are not just switching off our likes and dislikes. Still, there's, there's liking and disliking. There's still the beautiful and the ugly, uh, still you know, uh, the wholesome and the unwholesome, we, we're recognizing those. But uh, there's not that compulsive or reactive relationship to them. Uh, rather, there's a, a responsiveness. So that there's a, 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 uh, an incident I've often quoted, a, a story Ajahn Sumedho often tells of when he was um, a young monk at, at Wat Bapong, uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery in the early days, uh, and they still do. There's a nursing college in uh, Ubon, and uh, the the teachers there bring out the student nurses to come and receive teachings from uh, uh, the forest monks. And so, um, in those days, Ajahn Chah would receive this group and, uh, and give a talk to the the staff and the and the nursing students. And they still they come out. Ajahn Liam, the current abbot, is the one who looks after them nowadays. So on this particular occasion, uh, Ajahn Sumedho uh, was only about two or three years as a monk, and it was a, a very rare thing to have a, a foreign monk in that part of the country, and so occasionally Ajahn Chah would have him come out and sit with him so that people could see there was this, uh, uh, and be inspired by the presence of a, a foreigner coming from you know, a wealthy, far-off country to live in, in Ubon, to live at Wat Bapong. So that day, there was uh, probably 50, 80 of these student nurses, you know, so young teenage uh, women in there, late teens, student nurses and their teachers gathered around listening to Ajahn Chah's teachings. And so in that, that, uh, in that situation, it was very unusual for the young Sumedho to be in such close proximity to a large number of young women. Because the junior monks were always <laughs> off in the back and away from mixing with the public and uh, wouldn't be in that kind of situation very much at all. 
And also in Northeast Thailand, uh, things like subjects like sex and death and and body functions are very much ordinary everyday subjects of discussion and conversation. So people have a very straightforward way of speaking. So after this this group of, of um, uh, the, the nursing students had been there and spending a couple of hours with Ajahn Chah, and they they um, took uh, paid their respects and left. Ajahn Chah turned to Ajahn Sumedho and said, "So Sumedho." What did that do to your mind? Uh, you know, as, yeah, surrounded by yeah, a, a whole crowd of, of young, attractive women, and and the comment that Ajahn Sumedho made was "chop, damn my owl," which is "I like, but I don't want." <laughs> I like, but I don't want. And Ajahn Chah was so impressed with that that he, for the, apparently, for the next two or three weeks, you know, every Dhamma talk he gave, he was riffing on that theme. <laughs> Because it, it, that, that's really the whole thing in terms of, of, he wasn't pretending that he didn't like and say, well, I, I didn't have any effect on me at all. You know, I just saw a whole bunch of corpses sitting there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's for the, that's for the yeah. sexual desire, that's, kids, that's for the kids, you know, and beyond all that. Yeah. Uh, he didn't do that, or he didn't say, oh yeah, I was just kind of <laughs> yeah, holding onto the, onto the grass mat just sort of trying to control myself. But uh, it's, but he he recognized no, was, that was uh, there was attraction yes there was chop uh, yeah I, I like but I don't want so there's the the difference between feeling and craving vedana and tanha there's a bridge that you can cross there and a bridge that you can not cross <laughs> so Ajahn Chah was very impressed by that so that that's this is what we need to do we need to acknowledge and to to recognize the realm of feeling. And to, to to know that for what it is, and to not be confused by it, and then if we can know it and understand it clearly, then we we are not drawn into that the cycle of birth and death. We're not uh, swept away by that um, being um, born into that desire, and then being <coughs> swept, uh, the necessary necessarily the recipient of the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the, the disappointment that that uh, invariably follows upon <coughs> that. So maybe the last thing to, to say is that uh, one of the, the teachings I find of the Buddha that in this respect that's most helpful is he said, dukkha ripens in two ways, in further dukkha or in search. <laughs> so after so after the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, then that, that can head off in two directions. One is you know, <laughs> you're feeling lonely and adrift and unsatisfied and insecure. and So then the next desire object comes along, you know, the Samsung Galaxy S4, or the, the even newer, fancier method of making bowl stands, or <laughs> a new, another new house, another new relationship, another new monastery. And then around and around you go. Or it ripens in search, which is, there must be a way out of this. <laughs> there has to be an alternative. I know there's an alternative. I know the heart can be freed from this cycle of birth and death. I know. Now. Where is it? <laughs> Where's the exit? How do I find my way out? And that, uh, so we're training ourselves to listen to that intuition of the heart uh, that knows there's a way out. There's, there's a beyond. There's a, a way to free the heart from, from birth and death in absolutely genuine, complete and real ways. So 
then that uh, that faith is aroused, and that faith is what leads to uh, it's like the uh, initializing force, energy for liberation. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening.